Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. Hey, uh, I'm going to give it some thought uh, tomorrow, but we might be in our last little moment with Joseph today. There's one other thing we can do, but uh, I'm just going to give that some prayer in the next day or so. So uh, we're going to maybe say goodbye to Joseph today, but uh, look, look at him again anytime you get a chance. Uh, he's such a rich story for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, um, to teach us. Give us your spirit who spoke these words, who can say to our soul that you are our salvation. And change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my Brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your household and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives And bring your father and come and have no concern for your goods. 
for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each of them. He gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away and they departed. He said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. And I will go see him before I die. Amen. Well, sooner or later, if you're blessed, everyone in your life will be dismissed like so many Egyptian servants. And you'll stand before the sun I know for most of you, the son you believe in, but still the son you've envied and evaded and denied and betrayed in ways subtle and bold. And he will say to you, you were wrong about everything, but that's okay. God was doing what he said he would do. Blessed are the wrong about everything. Let's take a look at what they were wrong about. First about Joseph and then about the promise. The very first thing they were wrong about with relation to their brother is the most obvious. He's alive. About five times in this story, they have mentioned their dead brother. They had told the story of his death so many times that it became, if not a truth in their own heart, a truth in their own narrative about their story. Surely, eventually, he must have died. Their story about him and his death became the story of their own heart. They were incapable of imagining that he was still on earth, much less ruling over all of Egypt. You, uh, if you're a Christian, and if you're not, I'm very thankful that you're here. But if you're a Christian, you know that Jesus is alive. That's the heart of the creed, right? Easter is the heart of our hope. So you know he's alive. But neither you nor I understand the full measure and the glory and the power of his life. We don't understand or know or feel how magnificent and rich and enduring it is. Just like these brothers um, who sent their brother on to death 
and then lived about 20 years in confusion and distress and sin and struggling and striving. Um, You and I have lived our 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 years um, forgetting what it would be like to have one, the one, the only one, the true one, the real one alive among us. And how none of this sorrow and none of this grief and none of our sin has been able to conquer him. That he endures forever and ever. That his life is, as we're told in the Bible, inconquerable. The fact of the matter is, we've never really seen living life. We've never beheld an indestructible soul. We've never seen the fount and the source of everything that lives and moves. He is alive. And not just alive like I'm alive here in front of you, but truly alive, fully alive, eternally alive. Life unbounded and eternal and infinite. You and I don't know about that. We're we're wrong even when we're right. That's what we should understand about our journey with Christ. We know what we need to know. We can know what we've been given to know in Scripture. We could know it all and we still wouldn't know. We still wouldn't understand. When we see him, when we understand what his life really is and how it now lives in us, we'll be like Job and say, well, we thought we knew, but we did not understand. This is how surprised, this is how shocked, this is how stunned they would have been. The last time they saw him, he was in a pit. And then he was being trailed away, bound by the Ishmaelites to Egypt. And now he's alive right in front of them and they can't believe it. We're told they're afraid. Remember, people saw Jesus, they were afraid. They're afraid, they're dismayed, they're confused. They have no category for this. They were wrong about their brother. He's alive. He's also free. The last time they saw him, they sold him into slavery. He's not a slave anymore. He had been a slave. He had been a prisoner. But he's free now. In fact, he is maximally free. He is billionaire free. He's run the world free. He is, I own the house free. He's master free. And he's their master. He's Pharaoh's general. He had been ordering them around. He had been commanding them in his providence and his plan and his his purpose according to the promise for the whole time. And they had no idea. They were wrong about his brother. He He was dead, but before he was dead, he was a slave. And this whole time, he's been ruling over everything. He's the free master. If they would have only known that all of their management, all of their labors, all of their dreams, all of their storytelling, all of their striving, everything they did to evade the reality of the sun, everything they did was wrapped up 
with the, the elegance and finesse of divine sovereignty to accomplish the very purposes that they were trying to avoid. And so it is with your life too. And so it is with our government. And so it is with the world. And so it is with everyone everywhere all the time. The Son of God is not bound by the purposes or the ideas um, or the armies or the wealth or the power of any nation, any people. And um, that sounds great, but I want to say this to you. He's not bound by any of that from us either. He's always doing his work. He's always free. He's always master. They were wrong as well because he was indeed as we've been seeing, the one. This is what he says to them when he says, is my father still living? Now you'll forgive Joseph if he doesn't really believe his brothers because they've told him that his father was alive a few times, right? So let's forgive him for not being super confident in them. But when he, when he reminds them after he's identified himself that their father is his father, He's reminding them of the beginning of the story. He was their father's favorite. He was the one their father gave the multicolored coat to. He's reminding them that in the, perhaps not in the order of all the family, but in the order of of Jacob's favorite wife, he was the firstborn. Jesus is the one. Who else did God ever open the heavens up for and say, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. No one. Not the greatest among us. Certainly not you or me. I know that you, if you will take the supper here in a minute, you'll acknowledge that he's the one. But if you're like me, you probably want to be like 1B. I'd like to be 1B. I'm not number one, but I'm right after number one. And that's what their whole story was. Their whole story was about rejecting the promise and the reality that they were not the one. And every time I sin, and every time you sin, and every time I live a day without thinking of God, whatever, every time I have an interaction when I'm not imagining what he wants from me and how he's blessing me in the midst of it, I am pretending that I am the one. Don't be the one. It's exhausting to be the one. It drains you to be the one. And I can assure you of this. It drains the people you work with and the people you live with when you're trying to be the one. Take a moment right now to ask them. I'll be quiet. You're not ready for that, are you? He's um, inevitable. They didn't believe him, so he said, come near me, please. I, one of the most remarkable words in, in the whole account is please. 
Did you hear him? Come near me, please. He's second only to Pharaoh. They've, they've abused him their entire life, or his entire life. And he says, come near me, please. But, but there's an echo of another moment, really the last time they saw him and knew it. When he says, come near me, you maybe will remember back at the very beginning of his tragic story, which is now triumphant, they saw him from a distance. That's what the story tells us. They saw him from a distance. And now they're right in front of him, but he says, come near to me. Come see who I am and behold me. I'm the one. Look at my eyes. See my face. We have seen Jesus because God has revealed him to us. It's not flesh and blood that makes him known. But we haven't seen him as close as we will one day. We haven't beheld him in all of his glory. We haven't seen him like John saw him on the island of Patmos. We haven't seen him like the disciples did by the campfires. We haven't seen Jesus the way that we will see Jesus. And if you don't want to see Jesus more closely, then I don't know what in the world you're doing here. Or anywhere for that matter. He's also tender. The brothers couldn't imagine that Joseph was tender because the brothers were not tender. These are a severe, harsh group of men. Even Reuben, when he tried to be kind very early in the story and said, hey, let's maybe not do this. Even then, he had sort of T-Rex arms tenderness. He couldn't really solve the problem. He couldn't intervene. Um, Joseph wept so loudly that his servants heard him. He should have dismissed them further away. Pharaoh's house heard it. Overcome by emotion. Moved by the opportunity to receive again the brothers who rejected him. This is, as we've been exploring Joseph as a, as a type or a picture of Christ, this is for us um, a picture of what awaits the full revelation of Christ. He longs in his gentle lowliness to receive you the consummation of the ages. Remember, if you don't, that's okay. But he said he wasn't going to drink wine until we're all together again. He's waiting for the great reunion. There will be rejoicing. He's going to call everyone by name. He might even dance, which will prove that he's not Presbyterian. 
but he will, I imagine, well, I'll put it this way. I won't be surprised if he weeps to see his bride finally with him, finally near to him. And we'll see just how tender he was. We'll see just how tender he was, even when he was stern with us. And we'll know that we should have never doubted his kindness, even in our darkest hour, especially in our darkest hours. We'll understand, too, that he was compassionate. What does he say to these men? He says, it's okay. Don't be stressed. You know, remember, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Which is a remarkable thing to jump ahead in the story of redemption. Um, first of all, he was dead and now he's alive. That's fear factor number one. Secondly, the last time they saw him, they turned their backs on him and ran. Still, he said, don't be afraid. Joseph says, don't be afraid. He had compassion on them. You are here, most likely, most of you, because you believe him. But you know that there's parts of your life and parts of your story and parts of your now that you're ashamed and afraid to be alone and stand before him and have exposed I'm assuming that's true. I know it's true of me. Your hope, my hope, is that he will say, don't be distressed. The bruised reed, I won't break the smoldering wick. I won't snuff out. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Two other things that they'll find out that we need to find out that, that we might know but will be wrong is um, about it some measure. And this is the most tender, I think. Uh, Joseph is clearly lonely. If you read back over the account of the stories, um, you become struck or you you should perhaps become struck by the fact that Joseph is alone throughout it he's he's alone at the very beginning he's isolated between his brothers he doesn't go out with them he goes out alone he gets sold alone um he's he's mentioned in isolation in in Potiphar's house where he was the chief servant he's left alone in the um in, in the prison um he eats alone. Remember when they all came together and he just, like, his brothers went out? He, he doesn't know if his father's alive. Read Psalm 69 maybe this afternoon. And um, there's, there's allusions to Christ in that psalm. And you'll see that his closest friend deserted him. He's alone. Do you, my wife and I are, are empty nesters. Again, you know, we were and then we weren't and now we are again. Um, we love each other. We're together. 
But we, we long for the moment when we're all together. My hunch is that Jesus, who said he wouldn't lose a single one of those the Father gave him, will never feel like the table is complete. He will never start the banquet till the very last seat is full. Because he'll be lonely until all of his people are with him. And here's a troubling scene for those of us in our tradition and our temperaments. They'll also find out that he is a hugger. We're told that he he falls on Benjamin. He throws himself at Benjamin. He weeps on Benjamin's neck. This is not um, a little tear streaming down. This is bawling with joy and reunion when you embrace someone so firmly that you feel like you're making yourself go behind them as they go through you. He's reunited with Benjamin. He's weeping. He's overjoyed. All the sorrow, all the pain, all the grief, all the sin, all the stupidity, all all of his brother's uh, enmity, it all melts away. There's no room. There, none of it stands between him and Benjamin. And then um, that perhaps is understandable. But, but once he's had his moment with his own full brother, he then turns to these 11 half-brothers and he does the same with them. He embraces and weeps and cries on their neck and, and assures them with the gesture of his own body that, that they should not be distressed, that they will not be judged, that he has welcomed them into his dominion. This is for the saint for the follower of Christ. This is our great reward. That for all of our distraction and all of our rebellion and all of our sin and envy and strife, for everything we've done as if he weren't alive, everything we've done half-heartedly after he said he was alive, Everything we've spent, every word we've said, every thought and fantasy we've indulged, for all those things, he has full catalog and knows them all full well. He's got the list of everything we've done, every word we've spoken in secret, everything. And he will still run and hug us on the last day and weep that we're finally restored to him. And we'll be burdened by our sin no more. That's your dream as a Christian. That's your hope as a child of God. 
That's the north star of your life. That's what you want when it's dark out or when the sun is shining on you or when you're uncertain or scared. It's what you want when you're winning or losing. It's what you dream of. It's what you long for. It's that great hug from the chosen, living, compassionate Son of God. So what do you do now? Just a few words about how to be wrong all the time. First of all, understand what Joseph said to his brothers. God did this. It's an amazing statement. And it's reflected later in another famous passage, a word from Joseph that says the same thing. God did this. You know, the the brothers did this. The brothers sinned. The brothers were envious. The brothers sold them. The brothers lied. But, But not in Joseph's mind, not in the son's mind. God did this. What that means for those of us who forget who the son is, for those of us who don't understand the course of our life, for those of us who aren't getting what we want, what, what that means is God did this. God's always doing this. What did God do yesterday? What did he do this morning? Not what did your enemies do. Not what did your own failings do. Not what did your friends do. Not what did your spouse or family or children or boss or clients do. Always look at what's happening around you. No matter how confusing or how hard or how confounding. And say to yourself, God did this. God did this. You can also say, I don't, I don't like what God did right now. You can say, I don't understand what God did right now. You can say, I asked God to do something else right now. Say all that. I say all that. The Psalms say all that. That's in the Bible. We get to say that. We get to sing it actually in worship, which is crazy. But what we don't get to say is God didn't do this. This is beyond his reach. He didn't imagine this circumstance. Things got out of control. This is, this is the O-ring and the challenger, the one little thing that went wrong. We don't get to say that. We say God did this because um, that will help us say God will undo it. There's a remarkable um, illusion in this beautiful story that is so artfully told. Not only has um, the rejection of the son turned into the reconciliation of the brothers, that he's undone. Their rejection has not interrupted the promise and its fulfillment. Their uh, desire to kill the son has not killed him. But as if the drama of this scene is not acute enough, there is at the end of this story this beautiful, glorious image of how all that is wrong will become untrue, as Tolkien said. Where is that? 
Well, it's in this ridiculously abundant gift that Pharaoh and Joseph send back. You know, they, they, <laughs> they sent this back to this long journey, but, but they sent too much. They, they sent so much back, they sent, like, they would still have it when they got back to Egypt. So what's happening? Do you remember where the whole thing started? The whole thing started with a caravan of Ishmaelites. And the brother said, a caravan, there's our chance. And by the promise of Abraham, that despite themselves, the people of Israel would bless the nations and the nations would bless the people of Israel. Despite all of that, another caravan goes back. This time, not from the north to the south. This time, not with a brother who is um, in slavery, but now with the riches of the nations to save the people of God. He's going to undo. He's going to undo everything. He's going to make everything right. He's going to make all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's going to restore a hundredfold everything you've given up and everything you've lost. He will reveal how every one of your wounds and all of your pains and even your sins can be covered and redeemed and restored and magnified and turned into joy and glory. The tumult of the nations, everything, everything. So God did this, and God is going to undo it. Let me close with this little vignette from, um, from the story of Ulysses Grant, who is a remarkable, remarkable man. should read his biography by McCulloch. He was, uh, he, had, he struggled and um, had to leave the army because uh, he drank too much. And then he was trying to make his life uh, work and he didn't have any food. So during that season before the uh, Civil War, he chopped wood and then he would go into town and he would sell firewood. And when he was selling firewood, there was um, one of his fellow students at West Point saw him selling firewood and was surprised that this is an impoverished man whose family has, is almost, well, virtually destitute. So they had this tender encounter. I was looking up the name today. I'm pretty sure it's Charles Marshall, but... Um, I'd have to double check. And so Marshall bought some firewood. It's sort of probably the case that he didn't really need firewood, but he bought firewood. And, and we have this scene where um, Grant is in this, if you will, disguise of humiliation and destitution and brokenness. And this man who's established this friend of his sees him in this awkward moment. The next time they would see each other, 
was at Appomattox. When, when Lee had Marshall give him, that is Grant, his sword. It seems like Marshall had a tender heart towards Grant all along. But if you would have seen him in that moment, if you would have bought wood from Ulysses Grant, you probably would have been wrong about him. You wouldn't have understood. I've given a life to trying to understand and love and serve Jesus. And many of you know and love him more completely than I do. But none of us, none of us understand who we're dealing with. And when we do, we'll be overjoyed. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, Lord Jesus, to show yourself to us all. Amen.